Are you ready? Grab a hold and hang on tight. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6 verses. The Apostle Paul, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and one Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Father, uh, the more I pray over this text, the more I study this text, the more I let it overwhelm me, Lord, the more I realize that I can't teach it. So, Father, I'm going to ask you, the power of your Spirit and the inner man, with your might, teach every one of us the amazement of this text. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. We've been working our way through this. And we see that we have a call in verse 1 to walk worthy, which we have been called. But we came out of a prayer in chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul understood that this thing ain't going to happen without, quote-unquote, divine intervention. Each of us needs to be strengthened in the inner man. By the power of the Holy Spirit. At that point in time when that takes place, then Jesus is actually comfortable in us. And at that point in time, God does exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ever think or imagine. Then we, each of us who are called by his name, will know the fullness of God. That's the prayer. But in light of that prayer, we now have a calling. That information has been given to us. And the essence of it is, is there in verse 3, the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit is the characteristic of what? A worthy walk. You know someone's walking worthy because of their unity. That is how the world knows that we are His. I look at the church today, and I've traveled. Some of you know I was back on the East Coast, different places, dealing with different people, different situations. And one of the things that I have understood when I look at quote-unquote Christians, there are too many today who are eyeball deep in human methods. I got news for you. This is not human. And I also talk to people on a regular basis and I ask a simple question. How many lost people are you reaching? You heard the quote from Spurgeon. How many lost people are you reaching? I ask pastors that. 
How many lost people are you reaching? I know here in Castle Rock, all we're doing is shuffling the deck. Somebody gets mad because, you know, I rode my motorcycle without a helmet. Oh, I'm going over here. I'm going over here because, look, they've got drums. And it just, it just, all we're doing is moving people around. There's not a church in this town. Of course, I've been here maybe too long. But there's not a church in this town that I know, that I know people there that I was with in the past. But are we reaching the lost? You know why we're not? Show me the unity of the Spirit. Where's that? I, listen, I meet with pastors every week in this town. Every week I meet with them. And the whole big thing they always want to talk about, you know what it is? We need to show a unified front. You know what the problem with that statement is? Show. Show. According to this, I don't have to show a unified front. According to this, if I go back to Paul's prayer and then look at the steps that it takes, it will be there. It will be there. Every human institution is fragmented. You can take the Republican Party. The Republican Party is fragmented. Take the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is fragmented. The Boy Scouts are fragmented. Everything is fragmented. There is not a human institution that isn't fragmented. I have been... How do I say this without getting myself arrested? I know motorcycle clubs. And some of the things that they have to go through is really amazing. It's the reason I'm not in one. I ain't doing that. Okay, that's no, that's crazy. Okay, and yet I can talk to the individuals in the group. Guess what? They're fragmented. Well, I'm waiting for such and such to die, and then I can get over here and take care of it. It doesn't matter. That is our world. That is our world. There is no unity in our world. There is no peace in our world. And if you really want to get down to the nuts and bolts of it, there's no real love in our world. Our world, I love me, and I really like what you can do for me. That's love. Therefore, if you've got that, how much unity do you really have? I've got all kinds of it as long as you keep meeting my need. If you don't meet my need, then we're going to have to have issues. We are divided beings. I can chase that all the way back to two brothers, Cain and Abel. There is always disunity. There's always been a lack of peace, and there's always been a lack of love. Okay? But you know what? When I read this, I understand that there is a community of people who are totally in love with each other and they are totally one. They are absolutely united and cannot be separated. And when that happens, 
the world will recognize it. Why? Because they'll understand that it's not a human institution. Man don't do that. Back to what I started with. Look at the church. Most of the churches that I know in this area and those that I'd seen in different places in my travels are human institutions. Not so much out of this country. When you get out of this country, I remember a Russian pastor friend of mine told me, he said, we pray for you, the church in America. And I said, why is that? And he says, because in America, you add Christ to your life. In Russia, Christ is life. They will know that God sent me when we are unified. They will ask reasons for the hope that is in us when they see our unity in the bonds of peace. But as you look at it, it's in the power of the Spirit. The true church must be a supernatural source. You know, I listen to people wanting miracles all over the place. I'd give anything for the miracle of unity. Another reason that the Lord wants unity in the church of Jesus Christ is that when the church is unified, then it will manifest Christ. The church is called the body of Christ. Jesus incarnate in his church. First Corinthians chapter 12 says, we are all members of his body. We are all a part of his body. That's amazing to me. I mean, that, that is just, it's stunning to me. Only when we function in the right manner, only when we function as one, ministering to one another. You know what ministering one another means? Serving. Serving one another. I'm helping one another. That's the unity of the worthy walk. When you're not doing that, then just know this. It's no big deal. You're just not walking worthy. No problem. There's a oneness. It's a supernatural unity. That was the prayer of Jesus in John 17. And you know what is weird about it? 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. We're going to celebrate the rededication of vows with Stan and Teresa. The union of a man and a woman is a picture of that unity. That's what it's, that's, here, look, this is what it looks like. Then you look at some of the marriages, you're like, oh, God. Yeah, that looks just like the church. <laughs> how is it seen? How is this unity, how is this worthy walk seen? And that's, that's kind of what we're working through right now. First of all, in all humility. You know what all humility is, right? 
It doesn't matter what's going on. I'm humble about it. Right? Now, everybody says, well, yeah, amen, I'm humble. Really? When your boss tells you to do something that's absolutely moronic, how do you feel about that? Humility says, you got it. But you walk away saying, boy, you're stupid. Don't you? I know how it works. See, you guys don't have the boss I have. I am no better than tell my boss, boy, you're stupid. Because then you get these words, don't make me come down there. Okay? But I try to get people to understand, in all humility, let's, let's be realistic. Humility, is that a natural characteristic? In the New Testament, there's a word that's spelled epsilon, gamma, omega in the Greek. Okay? It's always used to translate personal pronouns. You know what the word is? Ego. Guess what? It's alive and well and growing. And you know what I've learned? The pulpit's not immune to it. So it's all humility. What is really nice about it, when you finally get to that place, being strengthened in the inner man, by the power and the might of the Holy Spirit, then all humility is the attribute, and that all humility leads to, depending on your translation, gentleness or meekness. You know what that is? It doesn't defend itself. I don't have to defend myself. Yet, what do we do? We defend ourselves. Listen, it accepts what comes. Because the only time that I will stand and fight is when it comes to God to stand for His holiness or His word. Other than that, I ain't interested. Well, you think I'm an idiot? (laughs) You should have known me earlier. Okay? You think I've got idiosyncrasies? You should have known me earlier. You know what? If you're really honest with yourselves, it don't matter what people think about you. And yet, what do you do? Now, be careful. It's easy to say, oh, I'm in church and he's preaching and all the rest of it. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. When you get dressed, who are you trying to impress? Yourself? See what just happened? I want to make an impression. However I do it. That's a lack of humility. It says it's about me. That one leads all humility to gentleness or meekness, knowing that the only thing I defend is the Word of God and the holiness of God. Other than that, I have, I don't need to defend anything else. You know, it's, it's Charles Spurgeon, I remember him talking about it and uh, a, a reporter was asking him, well, how's come you're not, you don't use apologetics? You know what apologetics is? Defending what the book says. And he says, uh, I don't have to defend it. 
All I have to do is open the cage and let the lion of the tribe of Judah out. Okay? All of that leads to long-suffering. I think King James calls it uh, long-tempered. Can take it. This New American Standard calls it patience. Okay, and I looked at part of this last week. It's an attitude that never gives in to the negative circumstances. Did you get that? It never gives in to negative circumstances. If I'm humble and meek, I don't have to worry about my circumstances. Okay, anybody here had a negative circumstance? Nobody's going to raise their hands. That's, that's good. Because if you do, God says, well, you're about to. <laughs> People who, regardless of what is happening, hold to the promises of God. I mean, if you think about it, I remember reading Eubius. Uh, he was first century church elder. And he was talking about Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? He was raised from the dead. And what a pain in the rear end he was to government officials. Okay? Why? What are you going to do? Kill me? I already been there. That's a reward. And that's always fascinated me because I thought, well, you've already been on that side. Jesus called you back from the grave and now you're still alive. You know you still got to go back, but what are you going to do to punish me? Really? Oh, darn. See, that is a person who patiently endures who believes God. I give you illustrations of it. Abraham, Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Jeremiah and Isaiah are dear to my heart because God says, I have a message I want you to give to the people. Yes, Father. Here's the message. Thank you, Father. By the way, nobody will listen to you. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's the deal here? Not only will they not listen to you, they will grow worse. And the point of this task is what? That's not what they said. That's what I say. But there's a second thing about long-suffering. It's an attitude that can take anything people can dish out. I didn't hear our amen out of that. Sometimes the problem in this life are not our circumstances. Sometimes the problem in our lives are the people around us. Hmm. And everybody's like, when are we going to do the vows? Merophemia is the word, patience. And it speaks of a patience of long-suffering with people as well as circumstances. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you guys really want something that will just absolutely run you around, take 1 Thessalonians 5 and read it. Because that is what Paul calls for a church to excel. 
And you read five, you're like, oh, gee, boy. <laughs> I'll go back to four. That won't help you anyway. But anyway, in First Thessalonians 5, 14, it says, Be patient toward all men. Yeehaw, didn't hear an amen out of that one either. All men. You know what all men is, right? There's some dandies out there, ain't they? Right? You know, I've been pulling all this together. I worked on it some while I was out of town, and I pulled it back together. And I'm just reading this going, hey, amen, brother, amen, brother. And then I'd walk out and deal with humanity and say, why did I read that? Have you ever had those people who just rub you wrong? Have you ever had those who rub you wrong and raw? Guess what your response is? Yeah, no witnesses to that, eh? (laughs) I call this meekness applied. Meekness applied. I don't care what the insults... I don't care what the injury, I don't care what the persecution, I don't care what the unfair treatment, I don't care what the criticism, I don't care what the slander, I don't care what the jealousy, I don't care about the envy, don't matter what is thrown. I remember decades ago, me and God had been going around and around, I was trying to do my imitation of Jacob. Except he didn't dislocate my hip. He just whooped me. And uh, I finally said, all right, all right, right on. Okay, whatever. Okay. Then I got really stupid. I said, uh, Lord, I want to be the tip of the spear. I want to be your point man. I want to be the guy that walks right in there and shakes it up. Because you done whooped me like a red-headed stepchild. Where did that statement come from? But anyway, you done whooped me. Okay, so let's, let's get in and mix it up. That was the dumbest thing I've ever asked for in my life. You know why? He made me a pastor. Not only did he do that, he made me a prophetic preacher. Okay, now understand, prophetic doesn't mean I'm telling you the future. I can tell you the future. It's the book of Revelations. Okay, now we got that out of the way. Okay, but it means prototokos means I am going to preach it and you ain't going to shut me up. Now, I didn't know that when I asked for it because I would have went to plan B. But you know what happens when you get in that position? Somebody puts a big bullseye right on you. And they all take shots at it. I think about the things that I did before Christ. And I think about the things after Christ. And I can honestly say that no one ever hurt me more until after Christ. And I can't even describe them all to you. But there's heartache there that you can't dream of. No matter what is thrown, there is no bitterness. There's not even a word of complaining. Between you and me, in our personal confessions, 
That's not natural. But you know what I've learned is? And I can't even count the times. When you're in that, it is really hard to start a fight with someone like that. Because everything's peace. Because they're stuck in this living peace. And it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you call them. No matter what you accuse them of. All of these things. doesn't matter. Why? I'm his. And I'm standing on his promises. Now you see the progression? How it starts in all humility. That humility brings about meekness, gentleness. In that you have patience. Long-suffering. Patience with who? Everybody. Every circumstance. Every person. See, let's be realistic. If we're honest with each other today, okay? Isn't it simple to get defensive? Isn't it? You know, I had a guy come up to me. Hadn't seen him in a while. He come up to me. How you doing? And I told him all the rest of it. He says, uh, you look like you're putting on a little weight. I said, but if you rub Buddha, it'll bring you luck. <laughs> I don't care. Really? I, see what I mean? Uh, you know, there are people who just, here, I'm going to poke at you. Why? Because I just need to. Fine. That's that defensive stuff. We try to defend ourselves. Listen, and the Lord is always showing us not to do it. You don't have to defend yourself. If we defend ourselves, then what we are saying is that we are important. What I am is important. What I do is important. And you know what? Truly, in the realm of things, it is not important. We defend God. We defend His Word. We do not defend self. I may get criticized, but I just take it. Whatever. When they attack. Listen, I want want to be honest with you. I'm not going to say that I've arrived. Because i got one that is just a burr in my saddle. And every time I have to deal with it, I have to get on my knees. Okay, I mean, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've had people attack my appearance, attack the way I walk, talk the way I talk. You name it, they have come after me for everything. Well, I thought I saw, I remember going, and, uh, a guy, his wife had, had, had gone out on him. And I went looking for her. I knew where she was. She was in a bar. I mean, if a girl's mad at her husband, she goes to a bar... She's a queen. Okay? I knew where she was. So I go into the bar to get her. And it, just really, it was fun for me because, you know, she's standing there with all these guys buying drinks and offering her the moon and all the rest of it. And so I tap her on her shoulder. She turns around sees me and turns about to cut her that paper. And I told, told her name. I said, uh, I think you should come with me. And she held her head and started crying. Of course, her boyfriends were all, what are you doing? ruining your party. And I I took her back home. Somebody saw me. 
It's 11 o'clock at night. What were you doing in a bar? Chasing women. What were you doing? What else you do at 11 o'clock at night? But you see what I mean? I did some work down at this liquor store to, in the Perry. And they were putting in them <laughs> stupid, energy-efficient fluorescent lights. I don't have the art to tell people. You know, that's a con, right? You know, somebody's making a lot of money out of that, and you're doing it. But anyway, somebody saw me there. What were you doing at the liquor store? Changing the lights. In a liquor store? You'd be surprised. They have lights in them. But see, I didn't even defend myself. I don't have to defend myself. I'm trying to make a few extra bucks. What's wrong with that? I defend my Lord. I will defend his word. But the one thing that gets me that I got to say is that in my life as a Christian, I've had people attack my motives. Boy, that just makes me want to, I don't know, not act godly. Okay? I like to hug people. Okay? Can't help it. My mom hugged me when I was a kid and that just rubbed off. Okay? And what I've noticed is, is that if you hug some, I'm going to get in trouble. If you hug somebody that is not quite attractive, they say, isn't that the sweet preacher? If you hug somebody who's attractive, what's he doing? That, that just drives me nuts. Because you know what I've learned in my life over 60 years? They ain't a person on the planet that knows my motives. Ever does anybody know what my motive is. Half the time, I don't. And and I've gotten better. I'll I'll be honest with you. I've learned that, you know what? They don't know what my motive is. And you know what else? It don't really matter. Probably the person that I hugged thought it was nice. I thought it was nice or I wouldn't have done it. Okay? The people who want to accuse me of it, you're just not nice. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, listen. Brothers and sisters, God bless you. you know, I know you've got plans. You know, you've got kids. You want to see your kids grow up and be successful. You want to be successful in your careers. You want to do this. You want to get your 405 or 60K thing taken care of. I know you want to do all of this, but I hate to break the news to you. It's all about God. And he's taken in his great pleasure, his grace and his mercy to allow you to be involved in the fact of what he has done in history and what he shall do in the future. But it ain't got nothing to do with you and me. It's all about him. See, the issue is him. And you know what I've learned? That is easier to be occupied by than the rest. This is what Paul is telling us about long-suffering, about patience. Listen, a believer can take any circumstance that comes down the pike, regardless of the circumstance. 
how it affects me, that's what upsets us. But if I don't consider it, how it affects me, then guess what? You will not be upset. I can take whatever people give. That's okay. When they are right, then I listen. I need to listen. When they are wrong, no problem. No problem. Okay, the third piece of long-suffering. Circumstances, what's your attitude towards them? Other people, what's your attitude towards them? Third piece, do you accept God's plan? Be careful how you answer that. You ever seen Job... Dude had a bad week. I mean, and then, then it just went south on him. You know what's amazing about the book of Job? Job didn't have it. He was going through it. He didn't know what was going on. And yet, the book of Job said he was the most righteous man in the East. That's what God said about him. And yet, look at what was going on with him. But he didn't have that. But see, it was still what? God's plan. Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, Satan wants to sift you. He wants to shake you up. But don't worry, Peter. I prayed for you. Yo, man, if you're the son of God, tell him no. (laughs) He said, no. Then he makes a statement that I don't think Peter picked up on. When you are restored, you will be able to strengthen the brethren. You know what that means? You're going to get sifted and you're going to flunk. And he did. And he did. But see, he didn't tell us the plans. He just says, I have control. Do you ever resist God's plan? Well, that's good. I'm glad none of you do. That's great. Hallelujah. Okay. I have a tendency to argue with him. You know what? I am 0 for 1,000 in success. So you put all these together, and that's the definition of patience. Doesn't question the circumstances and endures whatever the circumstance is. Doesn't question the people. Takes the people. And even then, still loves them. Doesn't question God's plan. Because God started history and will conclude it. Okay? Long-suffering, patience. I go back to my original. That's not natural. Aristotle made this statement, and I quote, The great Greek virtue is the refusal refusal to tolerate any insult and readiness to strike back. Unquote. Still true today, isn't it? 
That is not a Christian virtue. Why? I've been saved by grace through faith. You know what that means? I give grace. This patient says, Lord, if this is what is for me now, okay. Okay. I'm going to give close with an illustration. Really good illustration. What is the best illustration of this virtue? Jesus. Jesus. I mean, if you think about it, he stepped into some serious negative circumstances. Right? I don't care what you shake that thing out with. You're like, boy. He stepped out of heaven into this world. He left the glory of heaven. First John 1 calls it prostosteon. You know what that is? Face to face with God the Father. He left that. He left divine intimacy. He came into the world. He left an environment of total love. An environment of total perfect worship. And a place that everything was the praise of his name. He left that. And he comes into the world of men. They spit on him, they mocked him, they cursed him, and yet he endured. Not only the circumstances, look at the people. Those who knew what Scripture said. Those who were expecting Messiah. And even on that cross, bearing their sins, they mocked him, they spit on him. And what was his reply? Forgive them. They do not know what they do. Now, let me tell you something. There's something that is missing in our understanding of that statement. Long-suffering. Patience forgives sinners. When Jesus did that, I want you to think about this. I want you to contemplate this. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. What Jesus is asking the Father is that, would you please bring some of my murderers, those who hate me, Father, could you bring them to heaven to be with me forever? Brothers and sisters, that's patience. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he went to pray. And if you think about it, he says, Father, take this circumstance from me. Take this cup from me. Which is what? It's a circumstance. Take this circumstance from me. But not my will. Yours be done. He knew it was God's plan. God's circumstances and of accepting that plan and accepting it knowing it was from God. Brothers and sisters, I don't care how you shake that out. That is total humility. And yet, that is serious power under control. That's what meekness is. Power under control. Each produced humility, gentleness, 
patience. These virtues, uh, I believe personally, in the 35 years I've been walking with my king, I believe that these virtues are the greatest testing the church of Jesus Christ has. I think about evangelism today, and evangelism is a method. And yet the greatest is love and oneness in the person of Jesus Christ in the body of his people. That is unity. And you know what? When that happens, the world won't know what to do. The world won't know what to do. I don't know about some of you. I guess in my line of work. Have you ever had to deal with the reputation of the church? Hmm? I don't like organized religion. You know what? I don't either. That's why I'm so disorganized. But I look at the church's reputation and you have to shake your head and say, and we wonder why we're not reaching anybody. Why do people say, I ain't going to church. Why? Because Christians don't even go to church. Why? Because when I go there, I don't see unity. Really? If the church, if we had all humility as it produced a beautiful meekness that is strong and powerful. It is under control. It is a tamed lion responding to the master's showing. Guess what? We will have wonderful long-suffering. You know what else? The world would notice. The world would notice. They don't notice. I remember a sermon I heard years ago. There the question was made. If your church was gone, would the world know it? Think about that, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, I come before you. You show me over and over the magnificent power of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, the knowing that in Christ, we are in his body. So, Father, I would ask, I would ask that the people who are called by your name would understand the privilege of being in the congregation of the believers so that we could build on the unity and the power of your spirit, ministering to one another, overwhelmed with love for one another. Father, there are so many today, it breaks my heart, so I know what it must be doing for you who are not interested in the fellowship of the saints, encouraging one another to love and the good deeds. Father, you're not done. So I'm lifting us up specifically that we'd be one in Christ and we'd hunger and thirst for your righteousness and be overwhelmed with the privilege of being called children of the Most High God. Help us, King. Help us. In Christ's name. Amen.